We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 14 this morning. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among this are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be tempted at times when we look at our society and issues that rise up in our society to think, how did we get there? How did we get there? Why are we discussing this particular issue or that particular issue and all of the controversy that swirls around it? particularly in our 24-7 news cycles that we get constantly bombarded with, they can get amplified there. And there is a place, I suppose, to say, how did we get there? But there's another side of it that shouldn't surprise us. Let me give you an example of that. This new thing that we see as new, it's really not new, but this gender identity situation that we find ourselves in and which bathroom should be used for various people. And we think, how do we get there? How do we get there? It seems in such a short time we made jumps there. And then I think we need to remind ourselves that we ought not to be surprised. Because the seeds of getting there have always been there. Things in even your heart and my heart that lead us to those kinds of things. They are just the extension of where that leads. And what I'm talking about is the sense in which that all of us have in us, even as redeemed people, a sense in which I still want to be king. Certainly as Christians, we have sworn allegiance to another king. We talked about that in my Sunday school class this morning. A king. But there are times, even in us, that rises up that temptation to want to be king. When your spouse asks you to do something, and you think, I'd rather be king. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather have somebody serve me. I'd rather make that decision myself, thank you. Not have somebody impose it upon me. And that's really what gets us every place we go in regards to things like gender identity. It is, it is the ultimate sense in many ways of, of just saying nobody else is going to decide for me. I will decide for myself. Thank you. I will decide whether I'm male or female. Nobody's going to superimpose that upon me. I'm not going to allow somebody to superimpose that upon me. I'm going to decide. You see, that is 
something that is inbred in each of us. I will decide. I will choose. I will make this decision. I will do what I want to do. And nobody will tell me anything different. So you see, the, the, the extension of all of that should not surprise us. Not even biological nature is going to be superimposed upon me if I want to be a king I'll just decide myself. All of that comes from that sin of wanting to be king. Now, this text this morning, I think, has application to that and and comes against that, pushes against that whole nature within us that we will decide. Let's look at it this morning. Look at verse 15 of the text. It says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of what? Truth. There is, according to scripture, according to the revelation God has given us, a truth, a right and a wrong, a truth that stands outside of us. You see, Inherent within us is we will make up our own truth. We'll decide what's true for me. And what's true for me can be different than what's true for you. I have no right to impose that upon you. You can decide, even in ultimate issues of gender. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world operates. That's the nth degree of us wanting to be king. We will just make up our own truth. And what's true for me doesn't have to be true for you or somebody else because it's something I generate within me as king. I will decide the truth. But the scripture here says there is a truth outside of us. The admonition here is rightly handle the word of truth. Not the word, but the word of truth. And so the first thing we see in this text that should jump out at us is there is a truth. There is a place to say, this is the truth. Now, we humbly do that, and we need to be careful as we handle the truth. In fact, it admonishes us, rightly handle the word of truth. Be careful, do it humbly. But there is a truth. There is a truth that's been revealed to us outside of us by a God, by a sovereign, by a king. The word of truth. And the second thing, as a foundational statement to what we're going to talk about this morning, is that Satan hates that truth. The enemy of our soul hates that truth. A few weeks ago, in my Sunday school class, we were studying the Reformation, and one of the statements that was made is, um, Satan knows the truth. He knows it better than you know it, better than I know it. He's a good theologian. He knows the truth. The problem is, he hates the truth. He hates it. He knows it. So the, uh, the inference of that is it enough just to know the truth. We need to love the truth. And Satan hates the truth. He hates it. He hates the truth. And he comes against the truth. And it was the problem that Timothy faced in Ephesus. You remember this book? Second Timothy that we're going through was written to Timothy to preserve the truth, the deposit of truth. Make sure, Timothy, you pass it on. 
And Timothy was in Ephesus as we began. We talked about that. I'd like for you, if you have your Bibles, you don't otherwise just listen carefully. But I want to turn to the book of Acts chapter 20. And I want to read the situation that Timothy was in. As he hears these words to rightly handle the word of truth, this is this context in which he finds himself. Paul is writing, and what we find in Acts chapter 20 is Paul getting ready to leave the Ephesian church, and then Timothy comes in later to oversee the Ephesian church. But Paul predicts the circumstance that he now writes to Timothy about, the circumstance that is occurring for Timothy. Listen, listen to what Paul writes. He says in verse 17, the scripture says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul, calls the elders in. And when they had had uh, came to him, he said to them, now Paul's addressing the elders, the leaders of the Ephesian church, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's he's declaring truth, the revealed truth that he received from God to these people. And right in the heart of that, he says, how I did it with humility and with tears. So as we as we declare that there is a truth and we declare that truth, I think we have to do it in humility, but that means we still do it. And then it says in verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Why does imprisonment and afflictions await him? Because Paul is audacious enough to say he knows the truth. That is what gets him in trouble that he declares there is a truth outside of us. And in fact, as we do that, it will not be popular. It will not be popular. Make sure that we're not making it unpopular by the way we do it and by an arrogant spirit. We do it in humility. Make sure we're not the cause of the things that come against us, but the message is, and the message is the truth. But it goes on to say, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will See my face again. Paul says, you won't ever see me again. It's the last time. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, the truth. I didn't shrink from it, even though it was not popular. I, I declared it. Now he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And and this is what now he is declaring is going to happen as Timothy watches over the church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears with the truth. That's my, my addition, but he's, he's doing it with tears, but he's admonishing them in the truth. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had a spirit of humility, a spirit of servanthood, a spirit of giving, a spirit of caring, meeting the needs of those who had needs. Paul had that spirit, but he also declared the truth. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul leaves. Timothy is there now. Paul is writing in Second Timothy in prison to Timothy, who is experiencing what Paul prophesied in a sense that would happen, is that people within the church, people among them would rise up and come against the truth. That's the circumstance. That's what Paul is writing to. And the reason is because Satan hates the truth and Satan will stir up others to come against the truth, to come against it and try to try to trip it up and try to distort it. And so the question I want to answer is for us this, how should we handle the word of truth? How should we handle the word of truth? The scripture says to us in 2 Timothy that we should be careful about how we handle the word of truth. But what does that look like? What does it look like to handle it carefully? Now, certainly it has application to me and to the teachers and to the elders of this church, but it has application, I think, to all of us. How do we handle as a church the word of truth? How do we deal with the word of truth? And I want to make a few statements about that, a few things that I think come from the text, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. The first one is, we find at the beginning of what we read this morning, verse 14, remind, the word remind, remind. Remind them of these things. But the word remind, what does that have to do with carefully handling the word of truth? I think what it has to do is the inference of that verb uh, that says to remind, and that, or that, not, not verb, but the imperative to remind. The imperative to remind has the idea of persistence. Persistence. That you keep on doing it. You keep on reminding them of the things and charge them before God. Keep on doing it. Um, one of the things when I came to Richland, um, or, or actually when Pastor Jason came to Richland, that I gave to him was a plaque that said, it's a process and not an event, which I realized before he came, 
that ministry is a process. It's not an event. It's not, it's not one Sunday, but it's a, a process of Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and week after week after week of doing something. And what you're doing is reminding people of the truth, reminding them of the gospel, keeping the word central in the life of the church. Um, it is so important, I think, to, uh, to the life of the church. It's so important, you as elders... Keep that focus that, that whatever ministry we do, there's a place in which we have to, to get the word to the ears of people. There are things we do so that we can get the word to the ears of people. Luther said, it's my job to get the word to their ears and God takes the word from their ears to their hearts. So there is a place for us to get it to their ears. But what we need to make sure we do is that we actually get the word to their ears, that we don't that we don't do all the work to get the, it to their ears and then give them nothing to hear. They have to hear the word. The word is the truth. Get the truth to their ears. Keep the word central in every avenue of the church. And that's why as we prayed this morning, the, the key is to get the word to these children. All of the things we're doing, all the things behind me, all of the displays that are, you will find throughout the building are a means that we can do something, and that is get the word to their ears. It's not unimportant. It's valuable. It's helpful. But if you don't do the thing that actually does the work, it's, it's unprofitable. It's a waste of time because they need to hear something. They need to hear the word. And I would say this morning, it's so important for you who are part of the church, for you who have children in the church, that, that you, you make every effort you can to get the word to their ears, to take advantage of every opportunity within the life of the church for them to hear the word, that it can be passed on to the generations. Hit and miss just doesn't make it. Hit and miss won't work in getting that word to do the work within the hearts of children. So it's important as a body, as the elders and all of that, that we make sure we keep that central. We make sure we keep that central. The second thing, it says remind, which is the idea of persistence. You keep doing it, layer upon layer, precept upon precept, but remind them. We've already said who the them are really. We've already inferred that. It's the church. It's those in the body of Christ. Uh, We need to remind them. We need to keep the gospel central. The church, in fact, is for believers. I believe that with all of my heart. The church is primarily for believers. It's for believers to keep being reminded of the truth, to continue to have that happen. And there's a distortion today, I think, somewhat in, in the church world. When we, when we begin to, to, to think that the church is primarily a place that unbelievers come, that's not the way it was designed. That's not the way the church was in the beginning. The church was believers who met together to be reminded of the gospel, to be strengthened by the gospel, to go out into the world and be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This whole book of Second Timothy, Paul talks 
continually about the suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what does that mean? It means that the church met together to be strengthened and then they went out. The problem today is is twofold. One is if we get the idea that the church is primarily for unbelievers, so we design everything to make them as comfortable as possible so that they will come and hear the word. Problem is, the word makes us uncomfortable. The truth of the gospel first is bad news before it's good news. And so that, that, that there in itself doesn't work very good. But this, the second thing is that this, the added danger sometimes, if you don't see the church primarily for believers as a place to be strengthened to go out, they begin to get a fortress mentality. And the, what happens is the church begins to pull in and they, they become a fortress and they begin to kind of put walls up around it to protect themselves from the world and going out into the world and, and being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And all of that gets distorted. The biblical model of the church is believers primarily. doesn't mean that we don't invite unbelievers. doesn't mean that there's times that people accept our invitation to come and they hear the gospel. But it's fundamentally for believers to come together, to be strengthened, not to build walls, but to go back out. To be strengthened in such a way with the gospel that they're willing to go out and declare it. Declare the truth, even though it's not popular. Declare it and live it and live the life of the kingdom in the world um, and, and suffer for it. That's what happened to Jesus. Just this morning in my Sunday school class, uh, we're starting the Sermon on the Mount. And you would think, as Godfrey said in the video, you would think that the life that Jesus lived of humility and servanthood and, and being willing to, to love people, that, that he, he would have been popular. But the truth of the matter is he lived the kingdom life he was crucified. And that's exactly what will happen to us. We will suffer some of those same consequences as we go out. But we are to go out. We're not to build fortresses. We're not to build something around. We're to be strengthened to go out into the world and to declare the gospel, to live out the life of the kingdom among people. And God will use that in the lives of them. So the important thing for us is to to make sure that we remind them, the church, the body of Christ, of the gospel. The things that we remind them of the gospel. It's the third thing. Remind them of these things, the gospel. Continually do it again and again. And you see, that's why it's so important that we don't hit and miss with our families. We don't hit and miss uh, with, with the value of the church and the body of Christ. Because if we do, um, we may survive it as adults, but our children won't. They won't come to love the church. This, just this morning, I was in my Sunday school class, and I was getting ready for it, and there was a yellow pad there on the table. And I happened to notice it. I picked it and took it apart, brought it this morning. And this just strengthened my heart. Obviously, as a child who wrote this, And this is what they wrote. Maybe you're here. Well, they're probably not here. They're probably upstairs. But they were here. It just says, I love the church. Underlined with an exclamation point. I love the church. I love the church. That's 
what we want in our children, that they love the church. And they won't love it if it's hit and miss. They won't love it if, if they don't get the benefit of all of it. And, and that doesn't mean that, that the church is perfect. It doesn't mean that Christianity is just church. But the church is incredibly important. The body of Christ is incredibly important. It is so important that our children experience the body. A few years ago, um, long enough ago that, that you won't know who this is, because um, I've been here for 40 years. But it was a long time ago, actually. Somebody came to me. They, they kind of were hit and miss in the church. In fact, they missed more than they hit. But one day, that individual came to me on a Sunday morning, and I remember they being upset, and they pulled me into my office, or I pulled them into my office because I didn't want it to be a public display in the foyer. In fact, my office was in a different place than it is now. That's how long ago it was. But I remember saying to that person, I remember saying, as, as they were upset about something that happened someplace in the church with somebody in the church, I, my response back to them, typically I'm, I'm not quite as bold as this so quickly, but that day, I, I'm not sure why, but I think I did the right thing. I said to them, life in the church has to be lived in community. You live it in community. You can't hit and miss. And, and basically what I was saying is, you, I'm not going to listen to your criticism here. I'm not going to listen to it because you're hit and miss. And, and part of what it was, I remember the issue was memorization of Scripture in, in a situation. Upset. Their child had popped in, didn't know it, somehow maybe got embarrassed. I'm not sure what happened. But my response was, you can't hit and miss. The life of the church is lived in community. Then, And as much as possible, we need to be a part of that community. That's what Timothy was saying. Remind, consistently remind them, the church, of these things, the gospel. We need to continue to do that. And, and my prayer is that there will be lots of children who will write things like this. I love the church. It's so important. I say to you this morning who are young people who maybe are on the verge of launching out, going someplace else. Someday you will do that. Someday you may not come back here. This may not be the place that God ultimately puts you and places you. But when you go, you need to go to a place that elevates the word, the importance of the word, the importance of the word in the church to strengthen, the importance of it being something that is that people are reminded continually of the word, of the scripture, of the truth, that there is a truth, that expository preaching, you go to find a place and a body to land in, that that when they take a text like the text this morning, they don't just take this text and then go off and share their own ideas, but they try to get to the heart of what the person who wrote it was writing and attempting to communicate. You need to find a church that loves the word and loves truth. It is so critical. This idea of reminding them of these things that remind, this is, this is one story. It is the story of the gospel. That as they take text, it goes back to the gospel, to the good news of what Christ has done. Story about Christ and his work.
Find a body of believers that rightly handles the word of truth and makes the word central. The inference here is when you read the scripture, it says, do your best to present yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's the, it's the idea of cutting a straight path with the word. Cutting a straight path, rightly handling it so it, it cuts straight about life and about truth and about God and comes in a straight way. A few years ago, I was, I was listening to somebody who was talking about a pastor who had been at a church for a long period of time. And, and then after he left the church and went someplace else, he, he heard later that his church had, had really had some troubled times and division had entered in, and difficulties had entered into the church. And he started to reflect on his ministry, and he started to ask himself, what, what caused this? Why, why, after all these years, did that happen? And he came to the conclusion, I told them what to believe. I did tell them what to believe. The problem is, I didn't tell them what not to believe. I didn't contrast it with what not to believe. And, and I, I decided at that point in my ministry to, to change gears and that I needed to not only tell people what to believe, but what not to believe, to contrast with what is air. And that's really what Timothy is being admonished to do here. He's being admonished to, to deal with air, to deal with some of those divisions, to deal with those people who are rising up at Ephesus and causing trouble. There's a couple of different places where it begins to talk about that in this. It says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which is no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then a little later, he talks about a couple of individuals. And uh, they swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. They were upsetting the faith of some. And so destruction was happening. Air was occurring. So Timothy was to, to come against the air. And part of the idea of reminding and of consistency is that over a period of time, period of time, people can be strengthened in their faith. That's why it's so important to, to not just live at arm's length with the body of Christ. So that that can happen, that can occur. And certainly it's responsibility of leaders. It's why I think it's important to have a plurality of elders here. Not one person, which would be me, who, who primarily is the one that you hear from. I can, I could go all kinds of different directions, except there's a body of elders who, who hold me accountable in that. Don't let me sway off to, to tangential things, but stay true to the word and to the scriptures. So important to be in a body with a plurality of elders who have checks and balances, and one person doesn't just go off and build a kingdom unto himself. Cut a straight path. Tell them what the truth is and what error is. It was having destructive consequences here in this. In verse 14, it says it ruins its hearers. Verse 16, even stronger language as it it continues to talk about, uh, leads them to more and more ungodliness. There's all kinds of havoc happening in the church at Ephesus 
Timothy was to come against the ruins of Herod. And then it goes on to say it's like gangrene. If you don't deal with it, it spreads more and more. Out more and more. John Stott said this. There are two tendencies of heresy that are most revealing. We'd be wise to ask ourselves regarding every kind of teaching, both what its attitude is toward God and what its effect has upon men. There's invariably something about error which is dishonoring to God and damaging to men. The truth, on the other hand, always honors God, promotes godliness, and always edifies its hearers. Instead of causing catastrophe, upsetting them and turning them upside down, it builds them up in the faith and love and holiness. Rightly handle the word of truth. To not do it leads to ungodliness. But to do it bears fruit. We're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. And as we do that, I just want to read the last text here and make an observation. All of that admonition is to Timothy. To to rightly handle the truth to come against air. And Timothy could get discouraged in that. He could, he could just get discouraged and think, oh, it is too big a task. Too big a task. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord knows those that are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's how he ends this section. What does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is that God will preserve a people. He knows those that are his, and those that are his will depart from iniquity. There will be fruit. God will know it, his own, and they will bear fruit, and we will know it. We will see it. There's two women that recently I've come into contact with, and, and I, I share it here as we come to the table in reference to this. The first woman is dying well. She has terminal cancer. She's battled it several different times, chose to take treatment several different times, but it arose again. And she decided, no more treatment. No more treatment. It, 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 it won't have an effect. It won't work. And she's dying well. She's dying well. The second woman is living well. Recently came into contact with her. She was telling me about a circumstance in her life, a circumstance which she attempted to try to help with, a brokenness in this world, and she entered into it. And uh, she had high hopes that she could make changes and rectify the situation. And the truth is, she couldn't. And her response to me is, sometimes you can change circumstance, and sometimes circumstance change you. The first woman is dying well. She's not shaking her fist at God. She's not saying, why me? She's, she's dying well. She's dying to the glory of God. The second woman is living well. She has difficulty in her life, some things that she wishes weren't there, things that she thought she could make changes in, that, that God could change the situation, and he didn't but he changed her. God is working in her. You see, both of those women bear fruit of what? They bear fruit that they have rightly handled the word of God in their lives. 
I'm confident. I didn't get a lot of time to spend with either one of them, but I'm confident if I started to unlayer that, what, what has got them to be where they're at now? It would be the Word. It would be the Word. It would be Scripture. It would be, be consistent teaching that they have sat under and not only sat under but absorbed into their lives so that it has produced this kind of fruit for them. But that happens over a period of time. The truth changes us. The truth causes fruit to come. The Lord knows those that are his, and those that are his, he's begun a work, he'll complete that work. But for our sake, there's a visibleness, a fruit that gets exhibited as well, and we see it. And I pray that we will be that kind of people, a people for whom we have rightly handled the word of truth and let it change us and let it mold us. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your table and uh, we, we come, Lord, because you have beckoned us to come. Even this is an expression of the body of Christ, the expression of the fact that we are called to come together consistently, to not neglect the gathering together. And Father, I pray as we come to your table, we're again reminded of the gospel. Reminded of the gospel of our salvation. Help us, Lord, strengthen us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers and elders are going to help this morning as we distribute the elements. This represents to us the body of Christ that was broken for us, taken hold that we'll partake together.
Scripture says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Grateful for that revelation. I, I pray that you prize that Word, take and eat, and be grateful. represents to us the blood of Christ.
Timothy, remind them, take and drink in remembrance. Let's stand together. Father, I'm so grateful for the body of Christ here at Richland. Grateful, Father, that I was able to raise my children in this body for all of their years. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us. Help us to remember. Help us to help our children to remember. Help us to live out this life of faith in the body. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I would say go in peace, but we need help with the tent, so... (laughs) 